0: Welcome to episode 440 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views that we are about to express today do not reflect the opinions of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our families, or our pets. We've got a great lineup this time, a couple of folks who are new to the podcast, or at least first-time callers, starting with Nathan Symington, who is a Federal Communications Commissioner. Nathan, Welcome. Thanks, hey, Stuart. Delighted to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. And Megan Steeple, who is not a first-timer, Chief Strategy Officer for the Institute for Security and Technology. Megan, good to have you. Thank you. It's great to be back. Happy New Year. And Mark McCarthy, who teaches at Georgetown Law and is a fellow at the Brookings Institution and a longtime member of the uh, Cyber Law Podcast family. Uh, Mark, good to have you. Glad to be here, Stuart. Glad to be anywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Lee Berger, who is a Steptoe and Johnson antitrust partner, whom I met for the first time as we were getting ready for the show. He's the former, is this is his title, the former inaugural chief of the Civil Conduct Task Force at the Antitrust Division at the Department of Justice. I asked him whether that meant he was in charge of making sure that the antitrust lawyers at Justice were nice to the opposing counsel. And he kind of said, you yeah, know, why should we? Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Stuart. Great to be here. Okay. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the chief provocateur and the host for today's program. I I should say, Lee, the Civil Conduct Task Force was in charge of investigating civil conduct other than mergers. Is that right? That's right. Investigating and litigating. Okay. Yeah. So civility was probably the first thing to go. Uh, (laughs) Let's start with The Justice Department, because I think they made the biggest legal news in cyber this week. They are suing Google and seeking to break them up over their online advertising business, which I've long been saying is the Achilles heel for Google and the place where litigation, antitrust litigation, could make a big difference. Lee, what's the the case and what are its prospects?
1: So the new case against Google is very similar to the case that the Texas Attorney General had brought two years ago. Allegedly, Google has pursued a systematic campaign to seize control of all kinds of high-tech tools that are used by publishers, advertisers, and brokers to facilitate digital advertising. Google has three separate parts that are in three separate markets that essentially control the digital advertising space. Google has the technology that is used by nearly every major website publisher to offer advertising space for sale. It has the leading tools that advertisers use to buy the advertising space, and it has the large ad exchange that matches publishers with advertisers each time the ad space is sold. And Google uses its monopoly power in each of those markets to prevent competing products from getting a foothold. The complaint alleges that Google uses its dominance in each of those three markets to disrupt their competitors' ability to get a foothold and to increase switching costs that prevent
0: its customers from leaving the platform. And if I remember, right. this, is, this is an odd Benfellow's set of litigation because, of course, the Texas Attorney General doesn't agree with the Biden administration on practically anything. But they are together on this. And the New York AG and, and the other states that went into and in that case have turned up some pretty embarrassing emails that are going to feed this case. That's right. While there
1: are, I think, political differences between the Texas AG and the current administration, uh, the Texas Attorney General's office has had a long history working closely with the Department of Justice on antitrust cases, especially thinking about the eBooks case where Texas was co-lead with the Department of Justice and really did a substantial amount of the work that went into that victory. As far as the uh, embarrassing documents go, yes, there has been some embarrassing documents. The DOJ in its complete highlights, for example, a email from a Google executive who compares the Google's ad prominence to Goldman Sachs or Citibank owning the New York stock exchange. That executive wanted to know if that kind of concentrated power raises, quote, deeper issues. Um, <laughs> is that there are some embarrassing documents here, but I, I do think that the legal theories being pursued are, are quite varied. And so there are some that I think fall traditionally Within the antitrust space uh, concerning the acquisitions and exclusivity, and there's areas where there's discussions of deception that I think might fit into an extension of the law. There's also a substantial issue about self-preferencing, and that is an area where there could be real challenges for the DOJ's position. The FTC ran into similar problems in its case against Meta, and I think that that could be one area where their case is a bit weaker.
0: Yeah, I have to say, I I don't know if you saw this, but Cory Doctorow had a piece in which he talked about, he was talking about TikTok, but he was also talking about Twitter, he was talking about Google, and the polite version of it was he called it the encrapification of online business, basically making the argument that companies like Google or Twitter or TikTok are just great for customers when they start out, suddenly it's, it's almost magical how they understand you and how they connect you to your friends, how they give you the search you're looking for. And they gradually take that advantage and turn into theirs and start, instead of giving you magical, they give you adequate uh, stuff that they've been paid to feed you. And then once they brought the people who pay them in, they start taking benefits away from the businesses that are locked into doing business with them and gradually turn their service into a crap show. That everybody hates but isn't quite ready to leave. And I thought that was such a remarkable explanation of everything that's happened in Silicon Valley since 2010 that it's hard to believe you can't sell that to a court. Well, I I think the challenge is in trying to quantify
1: that anti competitive effect and comparing it to a pro competitive effect. Under the rule of reason, which is the principle that a court will use to balance the effects of this. The court needs to look at what the anticompetitive effect is and see if it overwhelms the procompetitive effect of these actions. Understanding what the prices for advertising or quality of advertising opportunities would be in the but-for world is going to be a real challenge for the DOJ. The DOJ, in some ways, has made its job harder by seeking a jury in this case. A typical case like this will find the DOJ only seeking injunctive relief. In this case, like, break up the company or put in place a consent decree that has certain rules the company has to follow. Here the DOJ is also seeking damages uh, for $100 million of the the government's purchases for advertising. And uh, the real effect of that is not going to be tens of millions of dollars in damages that the government seeks on the $100 million of purchases, but in getting to a jury. I'm sure the DOJ is thinking these cases are hard, a jury, especially given anti-big tech sentiment, might be a more favorable venue than having a judge decide the faculty's case. But it does require the court, or sorry, it does require the DOJ to prove a damages number, which is essentially a hint I could have effect. And that's going to be very challenging to
0: prove. Yeah, maybe. Oh. But I think you're right. I think, I, I assume this is a D.C. jury we're talking about? So the case is brought in Alexandria. So yeah, basically oh. a D.C. jury. But no, though, it could be Northern Virginia. So that's, that's, yeah. from, that's a different thing, although you'll still have... At least four or five jurors who uh, draw a federal salary, and I think you're right, they'll get a whole bunch of instructions about how to measure damage, and then they're going to get in the jury room and say, "Boy, my Google search results suck." <laughs> and they are all say, yeah. they're all gonna say, "Yeah, mine
2: too.
3: that'll be there. can I jump to please, the the, please. Uh, the end of the case and go to what was to my mind, the most important part of the the filing, which is the the breakup remedy. Right that was in a way a little surprising and and the complaint itself was pretty specific about it i mean they 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 want to unwind the double click purchase from two thousand and eight, yeah, and they also want to spin off the the ad platform, the ad exchange that links publishers and advertisers, and so the idea is that all of them would operate at arm's length, and that would allow a greater ability of the competitors to engage with them and and at the end of the day, presumably there would be lower prices for advertisers and there's no real rationale given for that i guess this is a little early for that kind of discussion but DOJ did reportedly reject a google proposal to house these separate units in separate parts of the company and and so you know, the rationale is not so hard to figure out what the why you, you'd want a separation even if you know DOJ gets an injunction against you know continuing to engage in anti-competitive practices it's got to enforce that Right, and the chances of, it, of of detecting abuse are you know extremely low, especially after the first couple of years. The department goes on to something else, and you know people's resources go to something else. But but even a breakup is hard to enforce, right? But um, AT
0: and T, look at that—that that, that turned out to be unenforceable
3: as a practical matter, although it changed yeah. everything. I mean, look—you you, you, you got to ensure that the same nasty conduct doesn't reappear in the form of contractual. Arrangements. I mean, a, a dominant publisher side ad server could say, I work exclusively with one of the ad exchanges. Or a dominant exchange could say, I work exclusively with a certain publisher ad server. Separation, in other words, doesn't really cure dominance. So let's I, ask
0: you, Lee. Lee, can you give me an example since at and of a successful structural breakup like this?
3: None is coming to mind.
1: But <laughs> I will say that DOJ, I think, has felt burned in some of our big behavioral only consent decrees. I, I don't think you have to look any further than Live Nation Ticketmaster, Yeah, where in 2010, we allowed that merger to go forward under the condition that essentially they don't use their dominance in either the venue market or the, the live performance market or the ticketing market to promote the other. And in 2019, we did an investigation where we found that that was exactly what they were doing, despite the consent decree. And we modified the consent decree to try to make it
3: stronger.
0: And then, yeah, you know, so where consent are we decree, today? Th- these regulatory uh, decrees, are they're just a joke, it's uh, my yeah, mind. But, but,
3: Stuart, Stuart, my point is that even if you do have separation, you still have to put in place some kind of behavioral controls to prevent them from reintroducing the same problem all over again. You could say, oh, you can't discriminate against different people, but then you have to supervise that non-discrimination requirement and you're back to behavioral regulation. It's not a fix to the problem. It just moves it to a different place. Well, we'll let the EU do the behavioral regulation. They love it. There (laughs) you (laughs) go.
0: Leet, is this the same as the EU's case too? Definitely related.
2: Yes,
1: it is very similar. You know, the EU's case has some aspects of the search litigation as well that was brought two years ago by the last administration, but mainly the allegations are
0: the same. So I, if I'm guessing right, this case is not going to be resolved in the this term of the Biden administration. If this is the last term of the Biden administration, it will be the next administration that actually brings this one home. Am I right? It's
1: possible that there is a jury trial before the end of the administration. They filed in the Eastern District of uh, Virginia. Oh, that's a rocket, rocket docket. Rocket. Right, and uh, unlike the Google search litigation, which was on a three-year track to trial, I think expectations are here
0: probably eighteen months to two years. Okay, uh, no, if, I've maybe, I've I've litigated there, and it is sweet. I, at <laughs> least if you're the plaintiff, because you know the judges just they take no crap and they take no prisoners. They just say, you know, hey, here's the trial date. Now you. <laughs> adjust your conduct accordingly, we are rolling, and it forces the judges to, to not think very hard about dumb stuff. You know, that you've got to get right to the heart of your case right from the start, and you, you're going to be held to that case and nothing else when you go to trial.
1: Yes, but even if you get to a jury trial in 18 months and the Department of Justice is victorious, there's still going to be a long process for deciding what is that remedy and how does that remedy work, not to mention appeals. So. Yeah. I, I think it's likely many years before any of this is resolved. And then, what does the market look like at the time that it's resolved? The issue could become obsolete by the time
0: by the time we actually get there. Yep, yep. Sort of, sort of like the Microsoft case. So yes, exactly. there's, a, there's a lot of there's a lot of bad uh, precedents floating out there. But it's going to be a big deal, and this will scare the crap out of Google. This it, just as it did with Microsoft, and it will change their approach to Washington and to competition. And we'll start to see that really, it's already starting, I think. All right, let's move on to the other issue that I think is a big Washington issue. Nathan, the Biden administration has been pursuing decoupling pretty aggressively and pretty imaginatively, I would say. And one of the central features of decoupling with China has been to try to make sure that China does not get the ability to build really sophisticated chips. And it turns out that the key to that are the machines that allow you to build really sophisticated chips which are made mostly in the netherlands and japan now the biden administration says it has a deal with the netherlands and japan to make sure that the restrictions on chinese chip makers stay in place is that basically what we saw
4: i think that's largely what we saw yeah and this is uh, this is an initiative that i would in some ways trace back to even a couple administrations prior when we saw NIST starting to look at voluntary cybersecurity frameworks back in 2013. And then, of course, we had a flurry of congressional and executive branch action in 2017 and 2018 queuing us up. But that was, of course, focused on the domestic sector. We weren't looking at decoupling in the sense of not allowing access to chip-making equipment in China. That said, I think how it plays out depends in part on what exactly where exactly the ball winds up in a few years from now if the idea is that we're going to keep china a couple of years behind the american curve in terms of the latest and greatest chips that's a very different thing from trying to freeze china at access to let's say 2022 chip making equipment all the way to 2030 and you can imagine knock on effects in the you know very competent onshore chinese ecosystem going different ways depending on what they think their future prospects look like
0: yeah. So I, I, I agree with you. Up to now, driven largely by DOD policymakers, there's been this notion that, well, on on stuff that's got a, an important military uh, application, all we can really hope to do is keep them a couple of gens back and gradually seed ground in order to allow U.S. and Western industry to continue to dominate the market by making sales. Do you think that... that Thinking is still in effect, or do you think that this is an effort to say, no, no, we want to roll them back and we may want to make it impossible for the homegrown champions who are making chips in China to ever compete in that field?
4: Again, this is a really interesting question because it's possible to scale up compute in a lot of areas just by having more of it. But there are certain applications where you need where you need the best at the tip of the spear, and this you know does seem like it would be a successful attempt at interdicting that specific thing. Now, as far as the question of larger impacts on the Chinese economy, I think, you know, people had to get realistic and say, look, Chinese already has pretty sophisticated onshore processes. China's already a big sponsor of risk 5 And so China has alternatives. It's not not a question of being able to completely deny capacities to China. On the other hand, if we're at, if we're currently speaking of the Western countries collectively, if we're currently the most advanced ecosystem and there's some ability to capacity deny there, then maybe what we're really talking about is achieving a defense goal of just keeping keeping some edge in what has the potential to turn into a, a tense situation. Yeah. I suspect that the Japanese
0: and the Dutch were more comfortable with that than with what they're being asked to do now. I think they feel as though they're being asked to hold the line much longer and and restrict pretty common technology. So I think we're going to have real unease in the Japanese and Dutch economies on this, because if you do what I suspect the Biden administration is trying to do and really push the Chinese further down. You're putting an enormous spotlight on this one technology, which is how do you make the most sophisticated chips? And there's only three or four companies that can do it. And you're saying to the Chinese government, if you can just steal that technology and then create a domestic champion who can build those machines, you will break the Western headlock on your ability to compete in a decoupled world and so we're really asking japan and the netherlands to take enormous risk with pretty important companies
4: completely agree and the the history of of chinese technology generally shows that i think china is not willing to accept getting lapped to an extreme degree i mean we know that for example pla has been working on anti-satellite since the 1960s and that they take those capacities seriously why would that be? Well, in order to in order to not be overflown with impunity and photographed with impunity. And likewise, I I find it you know difficult to believe that the Chinese government would accept being backed into a technological corner and would not take countermeasures such as the ones that you've described. Yep. And there's always a defector. I mean, you can always you know you 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 can always get get in somehow. And so our our question of how hard we want to try has to be informed not just by what results we would hope for it in an ideal world, but by what we think is reasonable and and possible given that the other guy gets a vote too.
0: Yeah. I think that the problem here for outside observers is this only works if you are smart and flexible in administering this and constantly thinking about what the other guy is trying to do to you, what the Chinese are trying to do. And we won't know whether the administration is doing this well or poorly until we see the results, which means we could just wake up with the the entire policy having failed. Doesn't mean it isn't worth trying, but they're going to have to have some really smart people, I think, inside the Commerce Department, I guess, making this work. I don't know. Do, do we have enough smart people inside the Com- Commerce Department to work this problem?
4: Uh, we've got a lot of smart people inside the Commerce Department. I don't know what the right number is to work this problem. I mean, certainly there's there's a constant challenge when you're when you're working in this kind of field, whether that's IT security, whether that's hacking, or whether it's chip design that the the federal government has a mixed record as a development shop, I would say. and yep. and to the extent that we can attract people from private industry to bring what they know or to you know to work on tech advisory committees, other committees and and tell us what they think the right approach is, you know that's that's part of winning the war at home, so to speak, on this issue. you know we we, we need to have sufficient buy-in from from our own domestic experts to in some ways teach us how to build the right federal departments to address the question.
0: Well, if you're following the uh, reports on quarterly profits, you would probably say the Commerce Department should be fishing in Intel waters looking for people who are ready to leave because Intel just had a just a brutal quarter. They're at the nadir, I suspect, of where they're going to be, assuming they're coming back. But it's it was every part of their market is in shambles right now. And so, yeah, some of those smart people should go make policy at the uh, Commerce Department. All right, Megan, DOJ, FBI had a big week really taking a victory lap over having taken down the Hive ransomware architecture. Is it as good a piece of news as the Justice Department and
2: FBI uh, said it was? Well, I think that to tell. if I can, can I have that cop sure. out? Yes, they certainly did take a victory lap. You you had the the AG, the Attorney General, the Deputy Attorney General, the Director of the FBI, and the Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division, which oversees the computer crime section at a press conference last Thursday morning. Now, it sounds like maybe the takedown happened last Wednesday night, and and as you said, it was related to a ransomware gang known as Five. Among the things that that you know I appreciate the facts that are in the press release uh, some of which are not surprisingly large and alarming and others of which are quite disappointing so on the large front you know, that they talk about the prevention of 130 million dollars ransoms by by the swift work of the department of justice FBI and its international partners and they also talk about the fact that they distributed a 1,000 decryption keys while they were sitting and working in a Hive's back-end-ish. In at least in one case, I think they actually prevented the decryption from happening in the first place. Or excuse me, the encryption from happening in the first place. So all in all, like, bravo DOJ for getting a little bit more creative in the way and, things are and going. And that, a better
0: performance than their last outing when, when they held onto the key and people were really yes. mad at them for having done so.
2: Yes. This, I think, deserves... A- Praise, and we hope to see more activities like this. I do. You know, on the on the, on the negative side, I guess it's not in the press release, but in the public remarks last week, I think I think it was Director Ray who noted there were only something like twenty percent of victims that they could see from their surveillance and other investigative measures came forward to police to the law enforcement community, not police necessarily. Well, wine,
1: uh, wine, boohoo. You know, yeah, 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 I, yeah.
2: I, I, that's you've got to
0: you've got to give people a reason to come forward and. They yes. haven't so far. Now they there is a
2: reason. You if you if you report that you're a, you're a victim, they might say, oh hey hey, we've got a key. Right. So you know I have to do my duty, and say, please do report and go. You know, make friends with your local FBI agent. They really are there to help you. And you know, I think you know is this as good as it seems? Really, it, I do think it's too early to tell. I think there's some reporting out there that maybe not all of the infrastructure has been removed, or at least wasn't removed when this press conference happened, and so. What you know, I think there's more to this story that we will hopefully learn over the next couple of and months. The human and you know, is still, the human infrastructure
0: is right. still intact, right? They didn't arrest anybody.
2: That's what I was about to say. Yes, there were no people arrested with this announcement. It was uh, the seizure um, of. Of websites, so hopefully, among other things, even if they didn't get people, this press conference and, and the publicity perhaps has given them hopefully new leads. Right? Hopefully, some of the, the the rats have started to run the ship in ways that we might not have known that they could escape for. So, well, we can talk. A li- we'll talk later about the uh, FBI's
0: going after a North Korean uh, Lazarus group. And there's yes. some good news in that story too. But but first, I I think people will say, how can you not be talking about Donald Trump being allowed back on Facebook after a two-year ban? Mark, is that a big story or have we been expecting this?
3: Well, we've been expecting it, but I was expecting a much larger reaction than took place. When I mentioned it in my class, the reaction was meh. Only two of the 24 students said it was a good idea and only two opposed it. The rest of them could care less. I I, I think that's right. I couldn't get the students to shut up about it a couple of years ago, and I, I suppose you know Trump is a lot less visible than two years ago. But this reaction it may change when his exclusivity arrangement with Truth Social expires in June. That's the arrangement that that requires him to make all posts on Truth Social six hours before he puts them anywhere else. So he might wait until then to mount a comeback, and then we might see a different reaction. Of course, you know. <laughs> One thing always remains constant with Trump, the, the universe revolves around him. He said that uh, Facebook had lost billions of dollars since deplatforming your favorite president, me. Well, well, that may be true, but I'm not sure there's a causal effect there. <laughs> exactly. So Nick Clegg sort of gave the rationale for it. We put new guardrails in place to deter repeat offenses, and the public should be able to hear what politicians are saying so they can make informed choices. But, you know, it's not hard to imagine other reasons. The company has been hoping, may have been hoping to generate new ad revenue from getting Trump back on board and, and keeping him off. That would have probably drawn some unwanted attention from the House Republicans, especially after, you know, Musk reinstated him on, on Twitter. And some people wondered, you know, why it wasn't obvious that Trump was going to misbehave again. I mean, he never showed any regret or remorse for prior conduct so uh, why wouldn't it be a public service to keep him off? An interesting reaction came from the free speech advocates. They largely supported it. ACLU said, yeah, we, we think he's, it's good. He's a public interest character. We, we think the tech giants should uh, be fair and impartial stewards of our political discourse, they said. And and the Knight Foundation had the same reaction. They said, yeah, of course, Trump has no right to be on Facebook, but you know I don't like it when these big companies make decisions about which political candidates we hear from. And which ones we don't, the disconnect, of course, is that both of these groups hate the Florida and Texas social media laws, and they impose exactly those kind of constraints uh, on social media, which, in effect, want um, them the, uh, to uh, be fair and impartial s- stewards of our political discourse. Yeah,
0: that's that's interesting. First, I, I do think that the, the worst blow is to tell Donald Trump that even the lefties don't care if he comes back. And I, I think, you know, hats off to Facebook, which has been going through a kind of dance of seven veils ever since they handed this issue off to their outside board and were told, yes, you have to reinstate him. And then they leaked that they were going to reinstate him. Then they announced, we're going to reinstate him and we've got some guardrails, but they still haven't reinstated him. But the time they do that, it'll be a non story. And that's what Facebook wanted. They wanted it to not, they wanted not to be blamed for Trump coming back. I think they've achieved that. And if they can just announce that they've let him back on before the deal with True Social expires, he may not even show up when they announce it. And the dance of the seven veils will have been completely
3: successful. That's a good analysis. But, you know, Trump has shown a capacity to come back from the dead before, you know, so he, he may resurface. And in which case, at that point, the reaction might be a bit more virulent than what you're hearing now. Yeah, maybe. Okay. I'm I'm guessing
0: not, but we will see. and I think it is interesting that the that those free speech groups are beginning to think, gee, maybe well, there is something to this free speech stuff. And I, I welcome their belated recognition of that fact. All right. Megan, back to North Korea. The FBI has attributed a hundred million dollar crypto heist to the Lazarus group very late. It was a, a very late compared to Elliptic, which I think picked some of the North Koreans within three days of it. Uh, but I still thought there was a lot of interesting stuff in that announcement, particularly about how they had prevented the money from actually getting into North Korean hands.
2: Yes, it's, it is a remarkable, you know, another great wind. I also want to say, just before we get into the facts of this, it's a it's a large group. I mean, oftentimes these types of investigations involve a number of districts and a number of U.S. Attorney's offices and, and field offices. But we we've got the National Cryptocurrency Enforcement Team, the National Security Division, multiple U.S. Attorney's offices, and the the VAU, the Virtual Asset Unit, which is a new thing that the FBI stood up last year, I believe, to undertake blockchain analytic investigative measures and as you noted, right? We're talking about Lazarus, who is attributed to DTRK. And they reportedly last year compromised the group called Harmony's Horizon, which was a third party that allowed individuals to move their cryptocurrencies around. As we know, the blockchain is immutable, but if you have a weak link that's allowing you to maintain your assets on the blockchain, you are still at risk. And that's, in fact, what happened there around um, the breach as reported in June of 22. You know, the, the FBI press release, I think, is less juicy than the recorded future piece that, that you'll, I think, probably include in the, in the notes for the session. But I will wind things down here to say they have done, a, it looks like, terrific work on identifying the number of wallets and the movement of funds here, which, you know, if I were a, a malicious person, a line actor, which I'm not, I would be a little bit more circumspect about with whom I'm sharing wallets and where I'm sending funds. I thought that was what was interesting is that, you know, there there was a hundred million
0: dollars stolen. The FBI is claiming they blocked the transmission of 60 million by basically taking their attribution to the folks who were holding funds that had been laundered, but unsuccessfully to them. And that the remainder is sort of stranded in accounts that now have been identified by the FBI as DPRK accounts, which means they're they're at risk. If they aren't already frozen, they're gonna be frozen soon. Nobody with goodwill or who wants to avoid indictment is going to be dealing with them. So they may have kept the entire fruits of this heist away from the North Koreans, which is a pretty good outcome. Yes. Now
2: we just need to have, you know, of note here, Binance and Wubi both are call responsible actors in this space. They do have uh, KYC and EML practices in their as part of their business operations. And so that's, I think, where they were able to be good guys in a sense here in allowing law enforcement to work with them and hopefully, obviously, prevent this distribution of stolen funds here. So, you know, also, obviously, you have to to know that this means that these monies are not going to help DVRK in its WMD pursuits. Um, All right. No WND for DPRK. Okay. Uh, well, that's good.
0: <laughs> let, me, let me turn. I, I want to come back maybe to uh, what the Grits have been saying about uh, Russian and Iranian uh, espionage, but I thought it'd be fun to talk about ChatGPT because, Nathan, if I'm reading the stories right, we had two stories last week. One that showed that ChatGPT will actually help you write malware and one that showed that ChatGPT will actually review your code and show you the ways in which it could be exploited and help you prevent exploitation. This really feels like the world we've kind of thought we were going to be in, where two artificial intelligences are squaring off to try to prevent or achieve a compromise of networks.
4: It's definitely some pretty incredible technology, Stuart. I mean this this reminds me of a a couple of references I'm going to go back to the 90s but I'm sure no one on this podcast is going to complain too much about that.
0: Ah, so the 90s I'm not sure I, I that's that's too, too I was I was fully reason. involved in my career by the
4: 90s. I didn't even watch TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but I'm not sure if anyone remembers the the Creighton thriller Rising Sun, but one of the plot points in it is that the the sinister Japanese corporation? Because at that time they were sort of stock villains, fairly or unfairly, but it conceals evidence of a crime by uh, tampering with video. And that you know was a sort of a blow to the idea that a video was going to be impossible to fake. And of course now you know anyone who really wants to can easily get AI tools to to start making their own videos. Likewise, I'm reminded of Kasparov squaring off against Deep Blue, and how you know we were all amazed that a computer could really get you know could he could even Threaten or, or beat a number one GM, and of course you know these days anyone who wants to can download Stockfish and have a thirty six hundred elo engine right on their commodity desktop. You know probably ranked a thousand points higher just about than a, than a top grandmaster today. So we've been watching incredible capabilities come online for some time, and Chat GPT is definitely a new frontier on this. The question for me is how much human like reasoning is actually being done by ChatGPT, as opposed to just the novel and, you know, again, novel and very impressive, but still just novel trick of of statistical text generation. So when I'm looking at what ChatGPT is doing under the hood, it's really taking a consensus consensus view of what the next logical word would be according to its training corpus, and just iterating that over and over. And that's, you know, that's something that, that we've, we've had some version of this kicking around for a while with uh, uh, Markov Chain Text Generation, for example. And when I had a look under the hood at the recorded future piece in particular, I got a little less worried than I was prior. I mean, okay. honest, honestly, my appraisal is that the security gaps that come out are going to be more about spam filter passage and maybe empowering phishing attacks. Because it's really doing fairly mundane code and it almost looks to be like a better user interface to Google or s- Stack Overflow.
0: Okay. That, that, that makes sense. Although, you know, so many of the compromises of companies comes from them not having do, done things that are obvious, right? That having a, a, an, an AI machine generated uh, solution that simply looks through the code that's running on your network to say, what hasn't been patched and patching it would be enormously valuable.
4: Well, I have to agree there. And just because it's not the type of AI that's going to take over the world doesn't mean that it isn't a powerful new tool that exposes threat surfaces that previously would have just been inefficient to attack. I mean, I, I think that's definitely true. And we've seen all sorts of prompt injection attacks on GPT systems that have, for example, pulled out hidden API information about the systems that were used to design them. So it's it's definitely true that there's an attack surface here that we hadn't thought of before, and then there's the human factor because so many attacks happen through social engineering. If you facilitate social engineering, then you've already done something there.
0: That's right. And and the Recorded Futures wrote a report on this that said it, it's really good. Actually, it was highlighting a bunch of, I guess you wouldn't call them script kiddies, but script juveniles in Russia who are wannabe hackers, not very good, but are trying to establish mindshare by showing how they can do things with ChatGPT. And... They did a lot of showing people how they can do better phishing emails using ChatGPT.
4: A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, you know, the script kiddies phrase is is really telling, right? Because the types of attacks that that we all have to protect against today, like DDoS, were originally sort of hard to do. You used to need a lot of technical knowledge. And then once those got reduced to scripts that could get passed around in IRC, we started to see the first attacks of those kinds perpetrated by relatively low information users. And that's, again, another 90s reference, I guess. But this is a general problem in security because we've often assumed that our systems require a great deal of capital to set up and a great deal of intellectual capital to attack. And if there's any surface that's exposed to automated attack, well, that's uh, that's a new paradigm where we have to think through that a little more.
0: Yep. All right. Well, this will be fun. I, I do hear from a lot of people who say ChatGPT GPT is not that different from a lot of AI engines. It's just got a better and more public interface. And we should not be surprised to see even better stuff coming out now that ChatGPT GPT has kind of Scared the pants off of everybody else who's developing large language models.
4: A new interface is powerful by itself. I mean, you might yep. look at a 1984 Mac and say, "Oh, I, you know, I could replicate all that functionality on a PC or something like that." But and yet, it was a paradigm shift, and it's affected what we're all doing today. Yep. Okay, Mark. It's very clear
0: that TikTok has
4: taken a new
0: approach to its public affairs and lobbying in the U.S. in the last month or two. It's getting covered in all the papers. And they recently came to town and did briefings for a whole bunch of think tankers. And we, we have a pretty good idea of what they said. What does this new charm offensive boil down to?
3: I think the, the, uh, the revelation of some of the details of what they're proposing to CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., that was that was helpful to understand what's really going on, and and there was a nice report that surfaced on Lawfare about that. And of course, this is what what TikTok is proposing. It's not yet approved by CFIUS, but it's it's a pretty good summary of the way in which uh, safeguards might be implemented, and the the key control is is separating TikTok into separate organizations. There's a new subsidiary that houses all those functions of TikTok's business that are of concern, access to U.S. citizens' data and the decisions on content moderation. The new entity gets to be governed by an independent board of directors. TikTok nominates, but CFIUS gets to approve. And the board reports to Cifius. Cifius gets to review who gets to work in this subsidiary, and they all have to be U.S. citizens. And Oracle is involved. They get to host the TikTok platform. That includes the algorithm and all the content moderation functions. The data traffic goes through Oracle Cloud. All the data is stored in Oracle Cloud. Uh, In terms of data that's allowed to leave the United States, there are only three functions that seem to be approved. One is when a user outside the U.S. views a video or, or wants to send a message to a U.S. user, or when a U.S. user deletes a video, Apparently, the proposal is to allow these three, but not others, and that's the proposal to CFIUS. Oracle gets to review the TikTok code. They don't get to download it or keep it, but when they certify the code then, and only then, can TikTok use it. U.S. government officials also get to review the the code. Oracle looks over the content moderation system the recommendation engine and all that content that gets promoted. And if it identifies a problem, it goes right to the government who has the authority to look at it in more detail. CFI oversees the whole arrangement together with a battery of outside auditors. And in addition, enforcement might be through the Federal Trade Commission's unfair and deceptive acts and practices. If TikTok says that it's not sharing data with ByteDance, its parent company, and it does. That's an FTC violation. And if China goes directly to TikTok, not through the ByteDance parent, and says to TikTok, which is a U.S. company, hey, why don't you give me all that data? TikTok would be in violation of the Stored Communications Act if it did that. So my first reaction was, okay, what else could TikTok reasonably promise that would assure us that the security risks are under control? And I think that's the message that t- TikTok is trying to send to Washington, they'll have a chance to say it in more detail when the Senate holds a Senate Intelligence holds a hearing in March on this issue, and the head of the company gets to testify.
0: So, I, one question: Does this mean that if you're a TikTok influencer and you have one follower in Canada, that your data leaves the U.S. and and maybe it? goes to Canada, but maybe it has to go through some other system someplace else in Singapore or, or Beijing. Yeah,
3: The, the idea is that, that that transfer will be handled by Oracle, and uh-huh. they're okay. they're responsible to make sure that it goes to that user in Canada and not to other places. Okay.
0: And the other question I had, my memory was that the Chinese government had said TikTok's algorithm, like all algorithms, is a matter of national security and can't be shared. This sounds like it's a proposal that's not completely consistent with that announcement. So maybe well, it, China it, it, has
3: changed its term. But the difference is, and China would have to review it, but the difference is that while Oracle and its auditors and even U.S. government officials can look at and review the code, they can't download it and they can't take it with them. Okay. So it's not a transfer of the algorithm of the code itself. It's a requirement for it's not transfer. Okay.
0: Are, we're not hearing that... Cipius has bought this. So, uh, my guess no, is that there's th- still a th- fight inside.
3: This, this is this is what what TikTok has proposed, and uh, I mean the the game that that TikTok is playing it is saying, okay, here's what we put on the table. You want to improve that? Let me hear your ideas. And they're hoping to avoid the growing argument that says no behavioral controls can work. We have to have a ban. And you know, you've got. You've got a couple of senators who are already pushing that, including Mark Warner and and Josh Hawley, and they're pushing for changes to AIPA, the International Economic Enforcement Act, that would allow a ban to go forward. They're pushing for changes there that would allow it to apply to a communications and information company. All right, so we'll be watching we the.
0: Not, so we'll be watching for that Senate hearing, and we just had another one. I, I don't know. I guess the, the the problem is I'm just not a Tay Tay fan, but. This was a senator after senator making objections to Ticketmaster's handling of a Taylor Swift concert ticket sale, and also trying to name check her best recordings. Uh, Megan, is there any broader lesson to be drawn from this, other than that when you're that big a, a recording artist, Washington cannot keep its hands off you? First, I want to give you
2: kudos, Stewart, for knowing her nickname. That was saying the fact that you're not a fan. And I will say, you know, I, have, I, have, I am partial on this particular topic as my family was a victim of this whole situation. Uh, what is the broader point here? I mean, it's, I think it's less about if you are that big of a singer, but more that big of a platform. And you, with all of your resources, and I would argue your monopoly position, can't manage to keep your path platform up and running mm-hmm. for what you know to be a high demand day there are bigger issues at play here. And you hear or you see Senator Marshall Blackburn, who was basically concerned about the same problem. But what we need to get after here is, is you know, not only Ticketmaster, but where are we, you know, are are the government's tools and, you know, the consumer protection measures that are in place to prevent the criminal activity and the associated with bots sufficient in this day and age? Or is there more that can be undertaken here, both from the government side, but also the platform side. So- yeah. And,
0: and Ticketmaster's solution is, we already have a special law written just for us to to, to to prosecute the people who use bots to buy tickets, but we need more laws. And so they've turned it around on Congress and asked for for, for more legal protection, which is, as you say, considering their, their competitive position, a pretty ballsy thing to ask for. Yes, for sure. Okay. So speaking of collapsing systems under pressure, the FAA system collapsed and grounded a bunch of planes for, I don't know, half a day. It was a big deal. Nathan, what do we know from the FAA's system collapse? This was the NOTAMs that we covered last time. uh, But I'm wondering if we have a better idea what's gone wrong and how to fix it.
4: Well, if we want to look at the at the proximate fi- point of failure, it's a corrupted data file. So it's hard to imagine this before we have sophisticated computerized systems. Now, what I would like to see is some of the FAA's highly effective safety culture and and reporting culture brought into its treatment of IT. Now, I mean, if you look at the FAA safety culture in terms of crash prevention, it's been very successful in part because they have NASA administer a third-party reports database so that uh, so that people in flight operations can directly report issues in an anonymous fashion, get them addressed without any fear that it'll get connected to their HR entity or that there'll be any personal investigation of them. And more generally, I think the FAA has shown... Unusual leadership worldwide in refusing to accept a human factor or human error pseudo explanation, which can often be exculpatory for the people who are engineering the system, and in any case just just avoids the question of how do we stop it next time. You know, I don't think try harder, you know, be smarter, don't make mistakes is is something that we would accept under these circumstances. So I hope they take the same approach to their IT systems.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's always possible to say there was pilot error. And if the pilot had been smarter or more careful, the plane wouldn't have gone down. That's, that's been true for, for 40 years, and we didn't tolerate that as an answer. In this case, well, for the last 40 years, we've been using basically the same IT system at the FAA, and it's always been, well, it mostly works, and something else that we adopted would fail more, and we don't know how it would fail, and we don't want to
4: see it fail on our watch. Well, there's that too. You know, I was recently looking into the major customers of the floppy disk industry, which still exists. And <laughs> and the aviation sector is actually one of the bigger buyers for reconditioned floppy disks. It's them at textile factories. Now, I, I have no idea what specific components those are used in, but it's interesting that they exist as a client at all. And, you know, the other side to having a very safety-oriented culture is you could wind up, and I'm not saying this is the FAA, but just, you know, notionally, you could wind up like a baseball player who's having a hitting streak, and so he doesn't change his underwear for seven weeks. You don't really know exactly what it is that's the secret sauce, and you just... Don't want to do anything that might mess up your good record, right? Yeah um, but it's a general theme to you know what we might call the email age and that gains in efficiency from software have often come at the at the cost of resilience. and you could you could see the FAA wanting to lean very hard on the resilience rather than the gains side of that. The problem is then of course, you wind up with so much tech debt and so few people who are able to work on your systems that at a certain point you've got to make the painful decision. Yeah.
0: So I on the in keeping with the underwear theme, which of course you knew I would not let go. I actually I had a friend who was launched into space on a Soviet or an ex-Soviet it was a Russian rocket from Baikonur, and uh, nicest thing a client has ever done for me. He flew me out to Baikonur so I could watch the launch. It was very cool, and we saw him come out dressed up by, in his suit. They saw they showed us the capsule he was going to be in. And it looked like something from 1961. And I said, you know, is this like the same design? They said, it's exactly the same design because we know it works. We saw him off. He, He comes out. He gets on a bus. They drive over to the launch site. And he told us afterwards, he said, well, you know, we stopped about halfway along out in the middle of the desert. And all of the cosmonauts got off the bus and went to the back of the bus and peed on the right rear tire. And... Then they got back on. And he said, why did we do that? And they said, because that's what Gagarin did. (laughs) So so they are definitely of the if it ain't broke, don't fix it school in in Russia. All right. I'm going to do some self-preferencing here until the Justice Department comes for me. From last week, I did a a story in Lawfare in which I pointed to General Mark Milley. He's the chief of the Joint Chiefs. In which he testified to the January 6th committee that he had assembled all of the records of how the Pentagon handled January 6th, put them all together, and gave them an enormously high classification so that they could be stored on JWICS so that nobody could get at them until he made them available to the January 6th committee. And he kind of said we no, there was nothing particularly classified there but I just wanted to make sure that we had control of them and I'm giving them to you when he when he testified and I pointed out that that was a dramatic overclassification, a violation of an Obama-era classification doctrine, executive order, and complained that you know you should you probably disadvantaged a whole bunch of people by keeping that information away from them. And I am pleased to say that I got a note and saw a filing from a guy who used to be head of the information security oversight office in the Pentagon who wrote to the current holder of that position to say, I used to have this job. My job was to enforce Section 5.5 of the Obama order, which said that you can't overclassify stuff and that we will treat overclassifiers with the same degree of punishment as people who breach and disclose classified information. So to the current head of the Information Security Oversight Office, why don't you fix this, go find out what Mark Milley actually did, and apply an appropriate sanction to him. I haven't heard yet that anything has happened, but I thought it was interesting that if you write some for something for lawfare, every once in a while something will actually happen. So there we have it. I hesitate to say that's heavily related to cyber law, but it's got something to do with it. Now, two quick hits and we are done. This is also a bit of an indulgence. The New York Attorney General is now probing the Madison Square Garden Management for their use of facial recognition technology to find that abused minority lawyers who litigate against the Madison Square Garden. The New York AG said, ah, this sounds like a civil rights violation to me. The Liquor License Authority has said, hey, you can't be doing this kind of discrimination if you want a liquor license. And the CEO, I, you know, I, I don't know what to say. He's kind of a, a mini Donald Trump. He has doubled down on this and is insulting everybody in sight and has said, well, you want to take my my liquor license? How about this? We'll have a Rangers game and there won't be any beer. How do you like that? And we'll tell everybody your your email address if they don't like it. Uh, this fellow's name is Jim Dolan. He is, I think, picking a fight he isn't likely to win, but he's picking it with enthusiasm. He reminds me of Donald Trump, uh, and I, I said, you know what I bet? I bet it's just like with Trump. It's daddy issues. And it turns out, yep, he is a very rich man. He, he owns the Rangers. He owns the Knicks. He owns Madison Square Garden. He's made a small fortune from the large fortune he I- inherited from his dad, who started CableVision. And I'm guessing that like with Trump, he's got a hair trigger for personal offense because he's not sure yet that he ma- measures up to his dad. that there's more to come though we can we can get plenty of drama and we don't have to worry about insurrections with with Jim Dolan. so more more fun to come there. And then finally, I report Google has done something right the, the Republican Party brought a claim against Google, which I thought was a pretty good one saying that Google had been caught using its spam filters to exclude Republican, fundraising emails from people's email inbox, but not Democrats, that it was doing things that none of the other email providers did with a with the same kind of dramatic partisan impact. And Google responded to that by saying, OK, why don't we just get rid of spam filtering for election campaign emails, which, of course, nobody wanted. They went to the FEC and said, can they do that? The FEC said, no, don't do that. And so now Google has basically turned the tables on the Republican National Committee and said, you know, we don't think there's a problem anymore and uh, we're not going to do anything that you've asked us to do. And I think I think Google Google has won that the RNC should probably just admit it's been outplayed. That is the entire episode 440 of the Cyber Law podcast. I want to thank Nathan, Megan, Mark, and Lee for joining us. It was a terrific show. If you liked it, please send feedback, or if you didn't, send a feedback to at stepto.com Leave us a review. That would be great. I will review the and read the entertaining ones. And, you know, I've got a low bar, so don't worry. Please leave us a review and send us a message that way. This has been episode 440 of the Cyber Law Podcast. Problem is, I'm just not a Tay-Tay fan.